I want you to begin with me in Acts chapter 2. We'll be there in just a few minutes. Philip Ryken describes how in 1994 he attended the celebration of the 350th anniversary of the Westminster Confession of Faith. You know that confession that our confession, the London Baptist Confession, uh, very much is similar to and comes from partly. At the close of those celebrations, the Scottish minister Eric Alexander began to ask a series of very provocative questions. He said, what is the really important thing that's happening in our generation? He said, where are the really significant events taking place in the world today? He said, what is the most important thing? Where do you need to look in the modern world to see the most significant event from a divine perspective? Many today would begin to talk about what's going on in Washington with our president and all of the details surrounding that fiasco. But he simply asked, where is the focus of God's activity in history? He answered by saying the most significant thing happening in history is the calling, redeeming, and perfecting of the people of God. God is building the church of Jesus Christ. And the rest of history is simply a stage that God erects for that very purpose. He's calling out a people. He's perfecting them. He's changing them. And he said, history's great climax comes when God brings down the curtain on this bankrupt world and the Lord Jesus Christ arrives in his infinite glory. The rest of history is simply the scaffolding for the real work. As I remember those words, I instantly remember that Alexander began to illustrate his point by referring to the building where some of those meetings were taking place. None other than London's Westminster Abbey. He remarked that the last time he had been there at the Abbey, its stone was black and the whole front of the building was covered with scaffolding. But something was happening behind that scaffolding. He says people were busy cleaning the building. They were trying to bring out its true beauty. And when the, the scaffolding was finally taken down, the abbey was revealed in gleaming, pristine white stone. And God is doing the same thing with the church today. He concluded his message by saying, quote, There will come a day when God will pull down the scaffolding of world history. And do you know what he will be pointing to when he says to the whole creation, there is my masterpiece? He'll be pointing to the church of Jesus Christ. What a mess the church often appears to be right now. But oh, how magnificent. One day God will present her to himself in glory. I want us to continue as we welcome new members into the life of our church, looking at the purpose of the church. In Acts chapter 2, we come to the first scriptural snapshot of the church. We see the church in its infancy in Acts chapter 2, and we see a bit of the DNA that's going on in the life of this church. Maybe for some of you, familiar verses, starting in verse 42. We will look at a variety and refer to a variety of passages this morning. And then we will continue back through our verse-by-verse -verse exposition of Colossians after this. We're going to begin with verse 42 where we see they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many signs or wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Friends, it's not rocket science. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Are you a Christian? Have you submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you treasure and love Him above all things? 
Do you want to grow as a Christian? Do you want our church to grow? Do you think that we should grow together? How do we do that? Well, as we have often said and will continue to say, it's not rocket science. It's through the regular preaching of God's Word, unfolding year after year the whole counsel of God and hearing the implications of the gospel resonate and infiltrate throughout every aspect of our lives. It's through partaking of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, as we see in the early church, through living a life given to prayer, through practicing hospitality and building relationships with one another so that we can care for and shepherd each other. It's through making disciples, through going alongside those who don't know Christ or who are in the infancy stages of knowing Christ and saying, I don't know everything and I don't have it figured out, but I think I might be just one step ahead of where you are, so let me show you and help you to get to the next step. And we help people learn to follow Christ. Well, we begin to see some problems ensue in the life of the church. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. I want you to have it in front of you, though we won't read through all of those passages. But I want us to move from the first scriptural snapshot of the church to the final scriptural snapshot of the church. In Revelation 2 and 3, we see symptoms of spiritual sickness and strength. And we see these not only applying to the first century, but we see them applying even today in the modern church. And if in Revelation, beginning in chapter 2, we see that God begins to put a spiritual x-ray to these local churches in this particular area. And he begins to really evaluate if they are holding firm to their purpose, to the reason for which God had tasked them, which is what we've been looking at. Well, if you'll notice in verses 1 through 7, we come to the Ephesian church. And what stands out about the Ephesian church is that they had doctrine, but no delight. They held firm to the truth of God's Word, and they loved theology, but they had not loved the God that all of that theology pointed to. And he charges them not just to love doctrine, but to love the Jesus that all of that doctrine points to and to grasp Him with joy and delight. As we move forward in this spiritual examination, we come to the church at Smyrna. In verse 8, and the Bible says that they were poor, yet they were rich. And how many today in the eyes of this world are poor in many ways? But the final evaluation of your life and mine is not what this world has to say about us, but what the what God has to say about us. And God says that they're poor, but in what matters most, they're rich. Could anything better be said about us? They persevered under persecution, and they were awaiting final faithfulness. They needed to press on. Those words ring in my head. Yesterday, Harley and I ran a 5K. We had not trained for this 5K in at least a few weeks. And I began to think after we got to a, about a quarter of a mile in, I'm going to die. I looked at her and I said, I don't think I can do it. I honestly think I'm fixing to die. And I just thought, just keep going. You know, sometimes I think that the most spiritual thing that you can do, weary saint, is just to hold on. Just keep running and keep trusting. And so that's what we did. And we didn't die. But what we see in the life of this church is that they needed to be pressed toward final faithfulness. The church at Pergamum, a summary of their spiritual evaluation. They had devotion, but it was mixed with deception. The opposite of the Ephesians church, they were devoted to Christ, but they were letting false teaching and false doctrine begin to pollute their view of what Scripture teaches, of the truth. And so they realized that they needed to hold to both, both the truth and love for the God of the truth. As we continue in this spiritual examination, the church at Thyatira 
Thyatira exemplified faithful love and endurance, but again, they tolerated heresy. They too needed to hold firm to the truth and know sound doctrine and love God's Word. The church in Sardis. The church in Sardis in chapter 3 gained a reputation for life, but with the reality that they were actually ill. And is this not what Scripture teaches over and over, that there are those who profess godliness? They give the illusion of Christ-likeness. But the reality is that there is spiritual illness. The church of Philadelphia. Jesus' evaluation of this church is that they were weak, but had patient endurance with a hopeful opportunity before them. Don't give up and don't give in. There is a huge opportunity before you, but you must cling tightly to the truth and you must rest on God's grace. This is going to be hard. Well, maybe you remember continuing in chapter 3, the church at Laodicea. One of the more well-known churches, they were worldly rich, but they were spiritually poor and they needed God's discipline. God, to show that He continued to love them by drawing them to Himself. And so we see that the healthy church, carrying out their purpose, prizes biblical doctrine. They hold firm to the truth, and they love the preaching of God's Word. They want the preaching of God's Word, and they want to read the Bible. But they also desire corporate holiness. They want to walk according to the ways of God's Word. They want their lives to reflect what they read. Increasingly, they have Christ-exalting delight and joy. It's not just a desire to know information. It's a desire to know God, to love God, to live for God, to take joy in God. And there's this pressing toward final perseverance, hanging on, being faithful. Our prayer in our home each morning together as a family is that, Lord, would you please help us to be faithful? We don't know what this day or this week will bring, but, Lord, help us to be faithful. We saw last week that the church exists for the worship of God, for disciple-making of one another as believers, and then the overflow of those first two purposes in a gospel witness to the world. Those are the three primary purposes of the church, and therefore the gospel is biblically portrayed and the gospel is joyfully proclaimed through the local church. This morning, we're going to zero in a little more specifically with something that we don't normally do, but something that I think that it would be helpful for us to do as we look at scripture first and foremost. But then I want us to consider church history because her church history has much to teach us. I want us to zero in and look at how we as a church carry out our responsibilities as church members and we enjoy our blessings and what the Bible says. But I want us also to look at the example of early 18th and 19th century Baptists. I want to pull you in a bit more to our family history. I want to pull you in a bit more to the giants on whose shoulders we stand as we look at what Scripture says, and then we see a vivid illustration lived out in saints who have gone before us, who were living examples of these things. Rather than isolated individualism, rather than a sort of spectator sport where we come to consume and be entertained and attractive, Scripture teaches in church history models that church members are to be responsible participants. Membership meant publicly identifying with Christ through committing to worship, committing to discipleship, and committing to our mission together. In the 18th and 19th century, Baptists modeled the blessings and responsibilities of church membership, not perfectly, but certainly in many ways in a healthy way. I want to introduce you to some of these. Benjamin Griffith in 1743 insisted, quote, the members of churches owe all their duties in a way of obedience to the will of God revealed in His Word. And their duties are to be performed in love to our Lord Jesus Christ. John 14, 15. 
who is the great prophet, priest, and king of his church. All church members, therefore, are under the strictest obligations to do and observe whatever Christ enjoins on them as mutual duties toward one another. I want to give you this morning seven responsibilities and blessings of being a church member. How do we carry out our purpose as a church? I want to summarize what the Bible teaches and what early Baptists exemplified through these seven points. Number one, church members covenant to gather and worship with the church. We looked at this last week. We've looked at this many times. Last week we went to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. Another key pastor in Baptist life I want to introduce you to is a man by the name of Benjamin Keach. Benjamin Keach asserted in his church manual, quote, the public worship of God ought to be preferred before private. Did you hear what I said? I can worship God on a boat in the lake with my fishing pole better than I can when I'm at church. That's not what they believed. Certainly we can and certainly we do. I know I enjoyed that. But he said that the public worship of God ought to be preferred even before private. He writes, God is here most glorified. Most of God's gracious presence dwells and the clearest manifestations of God's beauty with the most spiritual advantages are to be received. He said that the church in her public worship is the nearest resemblance of heaven. You say, I don't, I don't want to go to, to church on Sundays. Well, friends, are you, are you going to enjoy anything of heaven? <laughs> because that's what we're preparing for here. Francis Whalen, another early Baptist, said that if unbelievers choose to worship with us, we welcome them with all gladness. He said we will labor and pray for their salvation, but we give them no authority to interfere with anything relating to the kingdom of Christ. He said that when those who are not saved come into the church, we want them here because we want them to hear the truth proclaimed. We want them to see something of supernatural relationships occurring between believers. But when they come, they come to us as spiritual advisors. They don't come and tell us how to order our services. They don't come and tell us how to organize our church. No, he says... If we know better than they what is for their spiritual good, it's for their benefit that we should provide for them the spiritual instruction. He said that the patient may, if he chooses, select another physician, or the patient may prescribe the medicine for himself. But the patient doesn't control the, the treatment that his doctor prescribes. And so we stand to the unbelievers as those welcoming them to Christ, but teaching them what the Bible says, not organizing our life to, uh, together around what the world wants. So the corporate gathering centered upon worshiping God as believers and then equipping them to carry out their duties as husbands and fathers, as children and singles, as those in their workplace. In every dimension of life, equipping them to live as Christ in all of those specific realms of life. Looking back on early Baptists, James Renahan observes that particular Baptist churches were deeply concerned with worship in the Puritan tradition. You say, what is the Puritan tradition that we base our church on? It means that everything is guarded by the regulative principle. It means that every aspect of our life together as a church is guided by and governed by what the Bible says. And he says that the day of worship, the simplicity of expression, the focus on preaching and the Word of God, the observant of the ordinances, all of these things were at the heart of their understanding of the church. And if, as I've often said... The 1689 London Baptist Confession would outline what they would do when they would get together as a church. They would pray together. And they would give themselves to praying. They would read the Bible together extensively because through it they hear the voice of their king. 
They would preach the Bible so that people understood what they were hearing and then were urged and pressed to live in response and obedience to it. They would sing with grace in their hearts to the Lord, our confession says, in response as an act of worship to the Lord, which we'll do this morning. They would administer baptism in the Lord's Supper. And so they would gather together. I want to encourage you, encourage you, encourage you, again and again and again. Do you take time to prepare for the Lord's Day on Sunday? Friends, I realize that the week is busy and we have many responsibilities and many of you are right now walking through very heavy trials. And sometimes you think, man, I'm just doing good to be here. And if that's you, welcome, because you're in the right place. But I would like to encourage us as believers, come hungry for the Lord's day. Come ready to go hard after God. Set aside the Lord's day in your home as the best day of the week. I let Sunday be the day that the whole family looks forward to. Because it's on Sunday that we say, let us rejoice to go into the house of God and worship together. If you have children and grandchildren, prepare for the Lord's Day by practicing family worship in your homes throughout the week. As we practice family worship in our homes during the week, the Lord's Day is just simply another time when we're practicing family worship. We're just inviting a few more people into it, right, Heath? And so we're preparing them to sit and to love the reading and preaching and singing and praying of God's Word. I want to encourage you to read through the order of worship. Know what's going to be sung, know what's going to be said, know what's going to be read. And maybe just sit down together this week and just sing one or two of those songs together and read the Scripture readings. Talk about, in anticipation, the sermons that are going to be preached. We should help our children to engage. We should pray with our families. If you're single, gather together with others in the church and pray that our hearts would be calibrated together with the rest of the congregation. Prepare everything the night beforehand. Make it so the best that you can. There are no shoes missing and no clothes left to be laid out on Sunday. We want to be ready for the Lord's day. I want to encourage you when you come, be ready to fellowship with other people. Now, we, we need to get started at 10 o'clock, okay? We, we need to cut those conversations off, and we need to be ready to enter into a time of formal worship. But at the same time, just speaking for me personally, you know what the, one of the most beautiful things about our church is? You can't get them to shut up. And they ain't seen each other in the last couple of days, and they're just excited to spend time with each other. You know what I think that, generally speaking, one measure of a church's health is? How long does it take the last person to leave when the service is over? Do they enjoy hanging around each other, encouraging one another, not just with superficial conversations, but investing in each other's lives, praying together, crying together, laughing together, sharing wisdom together, talking about the truths that were preached and how we can put them into practice this week. I want to encourage you. I want to press you and compel you that when the service is over, immediately find people in our church that you don't know and that don't normally come and just simply introduce yourself to them and then ask them how they found their way here and ask them what they believe about what they heard said. Where are you at in your faith journey today? Now, I realize those of you who are extra, uh, introverts are sweating bullets right now. And we all have different personalities, and God uses us all in different ways. But may we not let a single person leave before they have been asked how they're doing, how we can pray for them, and where they are in their faith relationship with Jesus. It's not rocket science. Hey, how you, how you doing today? What brought you here? Any thoughts about what you heard? Where are you at in relationship to your relationship with God? I want to encourage us, number one, to be ready 
for the Lord's Day. And then I want to encourage you to be here on Wednesday nights to hear the preaching of God's Word throughout the week. Anytime we gather in members meetings, whatever it is. Number two, church members covenant to submit their discipleship to the church. Church members, number two, covenant to submit their discipleship to the church. Church members were expected to submit their discipleship to the church. Hebrews 13, 17. Early Baptists and healthy churches realized that to their pastor, they were expected to submit to their leadership, to honor their office and work, to defend them appropriately, to pray for them and follow their example, to support their ministry and provide for them and care for them in their trials. Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. Church members to each other owed one another submission to walk in peace and unity and sweet accord, early Baptists said. To show impartiality and exercising discipline. To watch over one another and guard one another from the deceitfulness of sin. They were to covenant to submit their discipleship to one another and not simply take it into their own hands and disappear. Number three, let's keep moving. Church members covenant to preserve the sound doctrine of the church. To preserve the sound doctrine of the church. If there were ever a day when that was needed, certainly that would be today. John Gill, a famous early Baptist, summoned church members, quote, to strive together for the faith of the gospel and earnestly contend for it, nor suffer any human inventions and unwarranted practices to be imposed on them. I want to teach my children not just what to think, although I want to teach them what to think. So we catechize them. But I also want to teach them how to think. I want to teach them to think biblically. We want to hold to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we want to hold that high and we want that to be central. Because God entrusts the local church with preserving and with proclaiming sound doctrine. This is why we see in the Bible and we see throughout early Reformed Baptist history that Baptists held to written confessions of faith that simply summarize what they think the Bible teaches. What does this church believe? Look at our confession of faith. That's what brings unity together us as a church. That's what we bind together around. J.L. Reynolds, another early Baptist, said, this does not create truth, it simply expresses the truth. You know, contrary to modern practice today, many of the practices that we put into place will often have new members or outsiders say, this is just weird what you guys do. Like, we're not used to this and we don't see this anywhere. To a, I'll respond, depending on what we're talking about, actually the modern way of doing church life is weird. Because the modern way of church life is only about 70 or 80 years old. Uh, really, we look a bit more like your grandparents' church and their great-grandparents and their great-grandparents back for about 400 years. This is what churches have done. And even before that, for hundreds and hundreds of years, we've upheld confessions of faith that help teach us what we believe that the truth is. Catechisms where we systematically teach our children just simply through asking a question and then giving a response. This is what Baptists have always practiced. We're to preserve the sound doctrine of the church. I encourage you catechize your children, but not just your children. I don't know about you, but I have learned more through teaching my children through catechisms than they've learned. The Bible says that elders in Titus chapter 1 verse 9 are to hold the truth and know it and be able to correct sound doctrine faithfully. 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's servant is not to quarrel, but he's to know the truth and gently and convictionally be able to correct those who stray from it. Deacons in 1 Timothy 3.9 are to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, even churches, not just church leaders, churches were rebuked for deserting the faith. Paul said, how quickly you've deserted what I've imparted to you. And he holds them responsible for holding to the truth. And I don't mean every nuance that we could possibly disagree with. I'm talking about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Summarized in a right understanding of the gospel. Well, number four. What is my responsibility and what is my blessing as a member of the bride of Christ? Number four, church members covenant to edify other members in the church. J.L. Reynolds, another early Baptist, said the oneness of this body does not depend on any external organization, but arises from a spiritual union of all of its members to Christ. And listen to this. Love is the cement of its parts. Love is the cement of all of the parts of the, of the church. So they were not aiming in Scripture and in early Baptist history simply to be right with what they believed about the truth which is what we see oftentimes in young men in the faith. Calvin said young men in the faith who have yet to begin to mature are like a boy playing with a sword. He's going to cut anybody he sees. He's not learned to handle that sword like a man. But the reason that we know sound doctrine is to express it in lives of love that reflect the truth. So the biblical understanding of the church always is to sacrifice, uh, prioritize sacrificial love. I love how John Gill put it. Maybe many of you have not heard of John Gill. Oftentimes he's used to talk about how precise his theology and how hard he clung to the truth. But I want you to understand what else John Gill also understood. Quote, nothing is more pernicious and ruinous to a church than want of love. He said love should be fervent, unfeigned, and universal to the saints. Weaker as well as the stronger, poor as well as to the rich, shown to all. He said church members are to as much as in them lies to keep to the unity of the Spirit and to the bond of peace, to sympathize with each other in all conditions and circumstances they come into, to give to one another in both physical and spiritual needs, to watch over one another, to bear with one another in all of our weaknesses and burdens, to pray for one another, to honor and prefer one another, to be examples to one another. What we see in the early church and what we see among early Baptists is what we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, that we're to know one another's spiritual condition and minister to one another based on where we are and whatever life is thrown to you. To admonish the idle, 1 Thessalonians says. To encourage the faint-hearted. To help the weak. And to be patient with them all. I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Where again we see, as we've stated in number 4, that church members covenant to edify other members in the church. To take responsibility for one another's faith. What does a healthy church look like? Does it look like something where people come in, sit, listen, they're either entertained or not, and then they leave? No, it's a family. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. What should our relationships look like? Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. You see, the relationships in the church should mirror something of that of the, of the family. And he goes on and says that we have a responsibility to take care of widows among us. Those who are truly widows, and he explains what that means. In Titus chapter 2, turn in your Bibles we begin to see more of an unpacking of what that looks like. Where we edify one another in the church. 
Paul gives us a blueprint. And he tells Titus as he's beginning to bring health and order to the churches in Crete who were flooded with paganism and pagan practices. And in Titus chapter 2, if there could be a heading to this, I think it would be, it's not rocket science, guys. It's not rocket science. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Yeah, that keeps coming up, doesn't it? But it doesn't stand on an island. Now the doctrine has to be lived out in real lives, in real living rooms, in real cubicles. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, sound, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. My call and my encouragement to you is where, where, where today? Where are the older men who are sober-minded? Where are the older men who are dignified, who are self-controlled? Where are the older men today who are sound in faith and love and in steadfastness? There's what we need. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Where are the older women today? We need you. Those who are reverent in behavior. Those who are not slanders or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't waste the years of your wisdom and your retirement. We need you teaching and personally discipling others what is good. And so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. There's the curriculum. And then he moves to younger men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. You know why the younger men need to be self-controlled? We have something called, we have something for younger men who are just often getting saved and they begin to learn more and more doctrine. We have a stage for that young man. It's called the cage stage. And what we mean by that is oftentimes he's so out of control that you just need to put him in a cage for a year and let him calm down and then you can let him out with the, with the rest of us. To be self-controlled. To show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in all your teaching. Show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may not be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. I completely realize that this is not exciting. It's not trendy and it will never make headline news. It's ordinary. It's steady. It's oftentimes boring and it's typically just plain hard. Hard. But when we're faithful to do what the Bible says and we trust the results to the Lord, and we simply do by the power of the Holy Spirit what He's told us to do day in and day out. Maybe we'll look up in a decade and see things that we never would have thought would be possible. Church members covenant to edify other members in the church. P.H. Mel said to the church, Christ delegates sovereignty over their members, calling them to watch over them in love, to instruct them in the truth as it is in Jesus to comfort the feeble-minded, to warn the unruly, to restore the wondering, and if need be, to put away from among themselves wicked persons. You know, I really enjoyed your hospitality series, Adam, and many others as well. But, you know, I think what we're trying to do is we spend a lot of time with a lot of you. We've, did you know that we've given our lives best we can ever so imperfectly and sinfully? Oftentimes, we've given our lives to love you to serve you, and we deeply, deeply love this church. But the, the truth is, and the thing that I, is just so unfortunate, is there's just not enough of us to go around. It's just not possible. I mean, every person I talk to and every family we have in our home, I mean, there's a list of 10 more that I think, man, I'm wondering how they're doing. I, I, I have got to sit down with Terry this morning because I've been praying for them and I'm worried about how they're doing. And so what we want to do and what we're trying to do 
is to teach you how to minister to each other. Right? We want to help you to learn how to take the Word of God and build each other up in the faith. That's the goal, right? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And if we're going to continue to grow, we want to be involved in your life. Don't hesitate to call me, but there's not enough of your pastors to go around. But it's not, it's not the goal anyway, is it? Or to help us to minister to each other. And number five, church members covenant to live in holiness before the church. And turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four through chapter six. We, we won't go through this mainly because if you're visiting, you wouldn't know that we took about two years in Sunday school to go through the book of Ephesians. But I just simply wanna, wanna take you there by way of reminder. Baptist covenanted to live in holiness concerning the testimony of, the, of Christ before the world. Benjamin Keats wrote, and also take care to educate and catechize your children and live as men and women that are dead to this world and walk for the Lord's sake as becomes the gospel. See that zeal and knowledge go together. A good conversation and a good doctrine go together. Friends, nothing that we're trying to do here is new news. What we see in Ephesians chapter, chapter 4 is a call to holiness in the church. To walk together, maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of the peace on a foundation of truth. In chapter 5, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. He begins to call them in their own personal lives to not only know the truth, but try ever as they may to live in a way that reflects the truth. In other words, if this is true, and it is, then our lives should increasingly begin to look like this. And then he, he gets more personal. He said, not even in your own heart, but in your home. Organize your home around a way that reflects, reflects the gospel. Wives and husbands, children and parents, bond servants and ma masters. And then remember that if you are striving to live in holiness Ephesians 6, verse 10 and following, the floodgates of hell will be unleashed against you. Friends, I guarantee you, you try to live in holiness and the floodgates of hell will be unleashed in your life in one way or the other. And if you can say that with a trembling lip, without a trembling lip, you don't understand what you're saying. It's difficult. And it starts in our hearts and it moves to our homes and it moves to our workplaces and it happens in the context of a local church. Number six, church members covenant to exercise the kingdom keys as a church. They covenant to exercise the kingdom keys as a church. Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, we've walked through those together as a church. If you're new among us, I would encourage you to go back and read those passages. But the 1644 London Baptist Confession affirmed this chief responsibility, saying Christ has likewise given power to his whole church to receive in and cast out. Any member, and this power is given to every particular church, not one particular person or member or officer, but to the whole to affirm those who they believe to be saved and to welcome them into membership, to go after those who no longer live as Christians and as members, to hold together what we believe in our doctrine, to appoint leaders. The church together must agree to these things and the elders lead in those things, teach the church in those things, propose what we believe that the church should do. Let me give you a snapshot into early Baptist churches for several hundred years in this country and abroad. Greg Wills, a church historian, said they had responsibility as a church to establish what the Bible taught, to define the qualifications for admission to the church, to determine what behaviors violated the law of Christ, and to determine what errors required breaking fellowship and what errors did not. They had responsibility to examine and ordain ministers, 
to secure the proper administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, to care for the poor of the church, and to promote evangelism and missions. Thus, the church jointly adopted the church's creed and covenant, elected its officers, and admitted believers to membership and expelled the immoral. Often, Baptist churches would meet monthly on Saturday before they would observe the Lord's Supper, and they would hear testimonies of those seeking to join the church. And then they would discern if not only they understood just really a basic understanding of the gospel, but also if they showed true and genuine repentance. In other words, I love Jesus, shed a couple tears, ain't gonna cut it. Do they understand that Jesus has died for sinners who are undeserving? And do they show something of repentance in their life to show that they would truly be a Christian? The chief delight and the chief duty of church members has always resided in coming to the Lord's table, to being publicly affirmed as a follower of Jesus and partaking of His body and blood and being nourished in faith and screaming from the rooftops that Jesus died for sinners. Well, finally... Church members covenant to serve in ministry through the church. Church members covenant to serve in ministry through the church. This is where the greatest blessing is. Every member of Christ's church has been gifted by Christ, by the King Himself, to play a valuable role in the ministry of this church. I was sharing with our prospective members recently that there are there are formal needs in this church that are ongoing. We have needs serving in the nursery right now. Needs helping to clean the church. Needs taking meals to people when they're sick or when they have a child or whatever it is. And oftentimes it tends to be a lot of times the same handful of people who are doing it. But there are also needs in this church that are not so formal. If you could just get involved in the life of this church and ask God how He could simply use you, it may not look like it does for you as it does for the person sitting next to you. But there are those in this church that are going through a hard time to simply message them or call them and say, how can I pray for you? There are young mothers in this church who would probably die to talk to someone over the age of 10 or 12 on any given day. There are those who are younger. There are those who are older. There are singles. There are marrieds. There are a variety of needs in this church. And there is no shortage of places that you can serve in a meaningful way that fits the way that God has gifted you and the way that God's made you. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're gifted in working with your hands or thinking with your mind or whatever it is, God has created you to serve in His church. Another early Baptist, Edwin Dargan, said that the church was not to be self-centered, but expansive and helpful. Each church stood in intimate relations with other churches and in more general relations to the world. Another said they must labor for the salvation of souls under the distinct impression that the grace which has saved them can save others also. Do you believe that the grace that God has extended to you and has saved you, do you believe that that same grace can save someone else? And God uses us, ordinary church members, to extend that grace to other people. It's been said by another early Baptist, churches are heaven's appointed agencies for the salvation of men. Early churches sought to plant and nourish other churches. They sought to evangelize those who didn't know Christ. They sought to have relationships with other churches, with other pastors, and serve in the same kingdom for the same purposes as much as they could. And early Baptists, I believe, said with early Christians beginning in the early days of Christianity... Let there be no one 
among us who could legitimately say, I didn't know anything of Christ. Let there be no one among us that can ever stand before God and say, nobody told me. I've often asked my parents, you know, why didn't we do some of these things growing up? And you know, their answer to me has been at least what eight or ten of you have told me. Why, why weren't we serving as much as others? Why weren't we practicing family worship? My parents raised me extremely well. And I owe everything I have to them. But they said the same thing that many of you have told me. We didn't know. We didn't know about all that. We didn't know what family worship was. But you know. And I know. And you can't unknow what you know. You following me? Now that you know, you're going to be held responsible for it. It's a responsibility. But is there a greater blessing? Is there a greater blessing? Is there a greater way that you would rather use and expend your life? Church members in Scripture and among early Baptist life enjoyed the blessings of giving and receiving covenant care one to another while seeking to extend those blessings to those outside of Christ and even to the ends of the earth. I pray this morning you come to Christ and may you love Christ through His church and may we see Christ as so glorious that we cannot help but speak of what we've seen and heard. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing among us. Father, thank you that as this world looks upon the White House, among corporate executives, among those things that represent wealth and influence and platforms, But that is not where you look for greatness. But Father, we pray that you would renew us today to remember that Christ is worth being faithful. And we pray for rest today. God, give your people, we pray, rest and renewal of heart. And those who think that they're your people and may not be, may they be granted repentance Lord, we pray that this Lord's Day would be a, a day that the Word does the work and your people worship in a way that's pleasing to you. And then send us out. In Jesus' name, amen.